Uh, this morning uh, we come to a text that uh, is a favorite of many, and uh, we just finished Romans chapter 5 uh, last week, and today uh, that was our series uh, um, from the curse to the cure, and we talked about the justification that Christ has prepared for us. And so if you're visiting here today, you're kind of catching us midstream, but that's good because it's all the Word of God, and we just continue to teach through it, and all these messages are available on the internet or the podcast. Uh, but today I, I want to talk about our new life in Christ, and we're going to be spending some time here in uh, Romans chapter 6. Um, I think uh, before I, I read the scripture, I just want to let you know that uh, a lot of times we come to certain portions of scripture that are kind of weighty, they're, they're deep, they're sometimes hard to understand, and so this is one of those texts, and uh, we just want to pray that God's Spirit would give us the wisdom to understand it. So join along uh, with me, following along in your Bibles, as I read our text for this morning. We're just going to be covering the first couple verses of this, but I want to read the first half of Romans 6, verses 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our Old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present yourselves to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. That probably raises a bunch of questions as we read through that. Uh, I once heard a Christian say, well, I haven't actually died to sin, but I did feel faint once in a while. (laughs) Um, That's how we feel as Christians, if we're honest. When Paul says that we died to sin, we would have to admit, all of us, that sometimes we don't feel very dead to sin. Maybe at times we feel a little faint, but dead? No way. Uh, And up to this point... I just want to kind of do a little review here. Uh, The letter has answered some of these questions. Why is salvation needed? 
What has God done to affect our salvation? How can we appropriate that salvation? And the answers came in all the chapters that preceded chapter 6. They come in terms of sin, condemnation, the gift of Christ, faith, justification. Uh, There's no need for really anything more at this point. But it's not the end of the story. Um, those who are presently justified, and I just want to review for us what justification is, because it's kind of a big word. Justification is God declaring those who receive Christ to be righteous. He declares you righteous based on Christ's righteousness. He gives us, he imputes to us, he gives us the righteousness of Christ. And because of that, he can declare us righteous. And so he speaks about our salvation comes through justification by faith. It's not something that we do that makes us saved. It's not something that somehow we can earn brownie points with God. Uh, Coming to church and praying and feeding the poor and doing all these nice things, and they're good things, and we should be doing some of those things, but that doesn't save you. And so the message up to this point has been very clearly that it's through the justification of God, it's through his redemption, through him working in us, that he saves us. But his plan doesn't stop there. He doesn't just save us. He doesn't just declare us righteous and say, okay, now you're on your own. No, there's, there's also some other things that begin to happen. It continues on in our sanctification. And that's another word I want to define for us because we have to understand what we're talking about. Justification is God declaring us righteous. Sanctification is basically, the, the definition is twofold. First of all, sanctification is the idea that At the moment you are saved, God sets you apart to be his very own. That's what that word means. The word for sanctification is the same word we use for holy, hagias. And and it means that God supernaturally takes you from the darkness into the light. He makes you his very own possession. In 1 Corinthians 1.30 Paul writes, but of him you are in Christ, Jesus, who became for us the wisdom of God and the righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And this is a once-for-all separation. It happens at our salvation. Nothing can ever reverse that. I don't know about you, but that's a good thing to understand. Once you are in Christ, you are in Christ. Nothing is going to change that, ever. That's a glorious truth. It's a once-for-all separation eternally onto God. And it's a very intricate part of our salvation. Um, Over in, in Hebrews chapter 10... Hebrews chapter, chapter, 10, chapter 10, verse 10. Look at what it says. It says, and by that 
will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ over and over and over again every Sunday on the altar? Is that what it says? No. It says, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, what? Once for all. Once for all. That's why we don't have an altar here. This is not an altar. It's a platform. (laughs) Okay? Um, We don't, at our communion service, believe that somehow I have the power to make that little wafer turn into the body of Christ. I don't have to sacrifice Jesus over and over and over again, and neither do you. It was done once for us. And that secures our salvation. And it's that same word, hagias, that word holy that we get, that God is set apart, God is holy, but you know what? After you're saved, so are you. You are set apart onto God. So first of all, it's this positional separation of Christ onto salvation. That's what sanctification is. But there's a second definition. And the second definition is simply this. It's the practical progress of holiness in your life while you're awaiting Christ's return. Um, In other words, the moment we are saved... Positionally, we are set apart onto God. But I don't know about your life, but practically, sometimes I don't live like I'm set apart onto God. (laughs) Sometimes I don't live in a holy way. And as a result of that, God is using things in my life to what? Make me more holy. He's using things in my life to sanctify me. To cause me practically to be more set apart Onto God. And that's a process. So you have sanctification as a, a state of being before God. You're set apart, but you also have sanctification as a process that goes on after you're saved. And Paul is going to talk about that in Romans 6. And there's a third term, too, that we speak of, and we'll we'll come to it eventually in Romans, but it's our glorification. So you have our justification, God declaring us righteous, our sanctification, God saying, I'm going to set you apart, and I'm going to continue practically to set you apart in your life as you live out your Christian life in this sin-filled body and your your, your sin-filled world. I'm going to cause you to be more holy. And then the third term is glorification. Glorification comes when that final, God's final removal of sin from us happens. That's when we enter the eternal state. Because I don't know about you, but I'm not sinless. I struggle with it every day. And so it's, it's part of being in the world, it's part of being in this body. We struggle with sin. And so what Paul is trying to tell us in chapter 6 is, yeah, there's going to be a struggle there, but understand that for the first time as a Christian, you have the power to say no to sin. What a glorious thing. You have the power through Christ and through His Holy Spirit to not allow sin to reign in your body, but to allow Christ to reign. 
And so he begins here with this uh, idea that you're justified and then you're sanctified and that sanctifying process continues until one day we will ultimately be glorified. Um, And so the Christian standing before God is our standing, hear me, is complete, it's perfect. Because it's the work of Christ who has been made uh, available to Christ or to us. It's, it's Christ's righteousness that we have. And at no time in this life or in the life to come will the Christian status in terms of righteousness be any greater. You're as righteous as you're going to be before God. It's not going to diminish, it's not going to fade. Paul says that God's gifts, his callings are irrevocable, they can't be undone. But God is not just concerned with our status, but also with practically how we live. The actual condition of the believer. No sooner has God justified a person than he begins this process of growth that we call sanctification. Um, And we need to realize that. And so the puzzle here in... Romans, people are kind of concluding here. Paul just got done telling them through one man, Adam, uh, they in, was the sin of the human race was imputed to them. Adam's sin was imputed to them, so we're all born in sin. And then he says, but that's not the end of the story. We can, through one man, the work of Christ, be saved from that sin. We can have our relationship with God restored. Reconciliation can take place. But it's on the work of Christ, not our own work. And he continues in that kind of uh, uh, argument right through uh, Romans 7 and Romans 8. Now, a lot of commentators say, well, Romans 6 begins a whole new Section And he's talking now about sanctification. In Romans, up to Romans 5, he was always talking about salvation. And there's a lot of good people that believe that Romans 6 starts a whole new uh, chapter, but uh, a whole new section on sanctification. So he's getting off the justification, salvation kind of bandwagon, and now he's getting on the sanctification bandwagon. Personally, I don't see that. Because if you just read, and you've got to remember... The little numbers, you know, in your Bible and the the chapters, they weren't there. Okay, this is what man has put into the Bible to help us find things easier and things like that. But the original writings, none of the chapters were there. None of this little verse 1, verse 2, it wasn't there. It was just one big long thing. So this is one thought. And if you, it it practically, logically flows right in to chapter 6. Chapter 5 does. It says there at the end of verse Uh, 21, or verse 21, chapter 5, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then he says, what shall we say to this? Or what, what does this mean? So it's a continued thought. And that's when he gets into, are we to continue in sin, that grace may abound? And so, You have to understand, a couple weeks ago, I taught a message 
on the mystical union of Christ to the believer. Okay? And I, I said that when we become a Christian, we are brought together with Christ. We are one with Christ. And that comes into play here in chapter 6. Because, you know, I, I, I've heard a lot of people say that, well, when Jesus died on the cross, you know, um, he died for you. That's true. He died for our sin. That's true. He paid the debt. That's true. He died for all those who would put their faith and trust in Christ. That's true. But I've also heard people say, yes, it's almost like you were hanging there with Jesus. And I thought, no, (laughs) I don't want to go that far. (laughs) Because Christ suffered, I don't have to suffer, right? That's the point. When Christ hung on the cross, you have to understand he hung there alone. He alone endured the cross. He alone was buried. He alone was raised from the dead. But his redeeming work, the work of Christ, is not only substitutionary that he did it for us, but it's also kind of a representation. He died for all, and therefore all died, 2 Corinthians 5.14 says. And so we have to understand that these, these, this process that God took Christ through, that Christ went through on the cross, it's, you have to view it as a substitute. He was there as our substitute. That's why we don't have to do that. That's why when you see religious people inflicting pain on their own body, thinking somehow that they're earning points with God, it breaks your heart because they miss the whole point of salvation. God's not impressed by that. God's not impressed if you walk three miles on your knees carrying a cross. That doesn't mean anything to God. He's probably going, what are you doing? That doesn't make any sense. You're not being a very good steward of your body, really, to abuse your body that way. And if you think that you're earning my grace by doing that, have you forgotten what my son has done for you already? It's complete, it's done, it's over with. And so Christians are viewed as being identified with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection, but it's not like we were physically there. He bore our sin. And as a result of that, he removed any claim of sin on us. He died to sin and he rose again. And because of that, the Bible says that he has victory over sin and death. And so this is kind of the line of thought that Paul is presenting in this passage. Now, I guarantee you at the end of the message today, you're going to have a lot of questions. You're going to say, well, wait, what about this? What about that? You know, you're just going to have to be patient. It's going to take a couple weeks to get through Romans 6. And I hope by the end, the questions will be answered. They're not all going to be answered today. You're going to come up with some good questions, logical questions, logical conclusions. And you're going to say, well, this must be what he said. Just be patient. Just be patient. One of the dangers, I think, in preaching salvation by grace alone is that it can be looked at or it can be even interpreted by certain people as licensed to do whatever you want. I mean, just the fact that I just told you that in Christ, nothing can undo that if you're truly a Christian. You can't become unsaved. No matter what you do. Now, you have to stop there and you have to say to hell, okay, 
So if we're saved by grace, if I don't have to work for my salvation, if I don't have to do anything, nothing really impresses God, then what's to say I just won't go off and do whatever I want to do? That's what certain theologians call antinomianism. And it's a big word, but it simply means this. Antinomianism means this. It comes from two Greek words. It means anti, which means against, and nomos, which means the law. So there's certain Christians that are antinomian in their belief. In other words, they believe in the grace of God so much that, you know what, that gives them license to do whatever they want. And I think that it's, it's important that we realize that's not what Paul is saying here. So antinomianism is basically against the law. They believe that there are no moral laws God expects Christians to live by today. Because, after all, we're under grace. That's their thinking. And that's against everything the Bible teaches. The biblical teaching is that Christians are not required to observe the Old Testament law as a means of salvation. When Jesus died on the cross, he fulfilled the Old Testament law. That's what the Bible says. Romans 10, Galatians 3, Ephesians 2. And so the, uh, the unbiblical conclusion is that there is no more moral law that God expects the Christians to obey. And that's just not true. The Apostle Paul was well aware of their tendency to jump into that arena. And if you look back even at at verse 8 of chapter 3, they began to question Paul and they used to say, and they began to say, and why not do evil that good may come? As some have slanderously charged us with saying their condemnation is just. Because Paul was saying, you don't get saved by being a good person. You get saved by being a sinner. So the logical conclusion would be, well, then I'm just going to be a sinner of all sinners. In, in verse 20 of chapter 5, we saw here, and this is where he makes a strong statement about grace, but where sin increased, grace super increased all the more. And he knew that when people read that and heard him say that, that they thought, well, if sin brings more grace, then hey, let's have a party. Let's just go for it. And he also knew, I think, that sin, the Bible says, for a time, short time, is enjoyable. It's enjoyable. Sin is enjoyable. He knew that sinning could be even twisted into a religious duty. You say, really? In other words, it provides an opportunity for God to give his grace and his love and thus glorify himself more if we just sin more. In other words, the worse we are, the more evil we are, the more glory God gets. Now, that is not true. But that's what certain people were thinking. And I think a lot of people that Paul had in mind were actually in the church of Corinth at the time because they had a real problem. People in the church of Corinth were actually having a problem with the church excommunicating a couple 
because they were involved in an incestuous relationship. And some people within the church said, well, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, after all, we're under grace, Paul. Can't kick them out of the church. It's a display of our Christian liberty. And somehow we, we pervert the grace of God in our own Christian lives. And rather than running from the, the edge of sin that God demarks for us in, our, in His law, I mean in His Word, He puts down certain boundaries for us as believers. But somehow when we get a taste of God's grace, we think, well, sin's right there, but I want to get as close as I can. And maybe even stick my toe in once in a while just because it feels so good. And... You know, after all, I'm under grace. It can't change my salvation. And we begin to rationalize that way. There was a famous Russian monk, Rasputin. He was known as the mad monk who lived like the devil. Uh, Crazy guy. F.F. Bruce, in his commentary on Romans, makes a reference to this guy. And he says, this tragic character character dubbed the mad monk by many in his day would be a chief contributor to the 1917 Bolshevik revolution in Russia, which ushered in 70 years of atheistic materialism. A closer look at his life reveals the theological bankruptcy of antinomianism and why Paul responded so strongly to the charges against him in Romans 6, 1 and 2. Rasputin, his name was Grigory uh, Yevmenov, something, I don't know what, I can't pronounce it, was born into a peasant family in Siberia, Russia. Illiterate, in spite of going to school, he acquired the nickname Rasputin. In Russian, you know what it means? Debotched one. (laughs) Because of his flagrantly licentious and moral lifestyle. Undergoing a religious conversion of some sort, at the age of 18, he ended up in a monastery. But Rasputin perverted their teachings into pure antinomianism. In other words, one draws closest to God when feeling unholy, passionless, and arrives at a point through sexual exhaustion and prolonged debauchery. Leaving the monastery without becoming a monk, (laughs) go figure, uh, he, he wandered thousands of miles through Europe and Middle East, or the Middle East, eventually arriving in Jerusalem. He gained a reputation there, uh, Bruce goes on to say, as a holy mystic with the ability to heal the sick and tell the future. Arriving back in St. Petersburg in 1903, he was welcomed by clerical leaders and eventually introduced into the court circles in spite of his, it says, odiferous propensity for never bathing. That's just gross. That freaks me out, just to think of that. Well, Emperor Nicholas II and his wife Alexandra were taken with Rasputin, especially because of the healing effects on their only son, Alexei, the future czar of Russia. The child was a hemophiliac, and Rasputin saved his life on one occasion by stopping his bleeding when doctors uh, were unable to do so. The miracle endeared Rasputin to the royal family and gave him increased powers of influence with them. They saw him in the courts as a humble and holy religious peasant with the powers from God. Outside the court, he continued to earn his nickname, attending orgies and religious services with equal devotion. Through his belief 
that physical contact with his body produced healing effects. Rasputin seduced young women repeatedly and continued in all manner of immoral behavior. Rumors of an affair between Rasputin and the emperor's wife, Alexandra, even circulated. Counselors to the emperor insisted on Rasputin's removal, but the emperor failed to do so under the influence of his wife. When Nicholas II left St. Petersburg to continue uh, Russian command Russian troops at the beginning of World War I, Rasputin became chief advisor to Alexandra, who had been left in charge of Russia's internal affairs. His influence resulted in a series of disastrous clerical and government appointments, causing increasing dissent among Russians suffering at the hands of the uh, autocracy. Um, a, a group of extreme conservatives, some related to the Tsar and all holding influential positions, plotted in December 1916 to kill Rasputin as a way to end his um, influence on the Russian nation. This they accomplished in late December, but it was too late. The Bol- Bolsheviks, seizing the opportunity to capitalize on the negative perception of the emperor, revolted in seven- 1917. The God who was missing from the life of the Empress's closest advisor in 1916 was officially driven completely out of Russia beginning in 1917. And he asked the question, was antinomianism the cause of the Bolshevik revolution in Russia? He says, no, but there can be no way to estimate the damage done to a government, irrespective of its other weaknesses, by a man who pro-offered spiritual power on the one hand and lived like the devil on the other. So this is a very real problem. It was real in Paul's day, and it's even real today. I think it's very real in many churches today. And so in Romans 6, Paul raises and he refutes this charge of antinomian behavior. And his simple answer is this, a true Christian cannot live in sin because he or she is dead to sin. That's the simple answer. The believer is no longer the servant of sin, but the servant of righteousness. And so the chapter goes on, and it's spent basically explaining how a believer in Jesus Christ can have died to sin and been made alive to righteousness. And in that explanation is the answer to the charge that Paul or any other true believer in Christ could possibly be antinomian in their behavior. And so it's a very important um, chapter. And we have to kind of come to this with, you know, hopefully you drank your coffee this morning, because there's, there's a lot that we're going to grapple with. Um, and so when it comes to chapter 6, um, Paul doesn't just say once that we're dead to sin, that we died to sin, but he says it in verse 3, he says it in verse 4, he says it in verse 5, he says it in verse 6, he first says it in verse 7, he says it in verse 8, he says it in verse 11, and he also says it in verse 13. So, over the next couple of weeks, if you think, boy, this pastor is just repeating himself, well, there's a reason, because it's in the text. Paul repeated himself, and there was a reason for that. And so, it's a very difficult concept to understand, because if you're honest with yourself, you don't feel dead to sin as a Christian. Sometimes we don't even feel faint. Um... And so we have to stop and we have to ask ourselves, what is, what is Paul getting at here? Remember, justification by faith dealt with the penalty of our sin. But how can we live a holy life? The question is this, how can we live a holy life in which sins 
power is said to be broken over us. And chapter 6 begins to tell us that. It falls into two main sections, verses 1 through 14, which we read this morning. And he addresses this objection that he knows will follow from what he's been teaching. He's been telling people that God justifies sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from any merit. He's especially responding to what was said there in verse 20, as I said. And so people thought, well, you know what? If, if grace abounds when sin is there, let's, let's sin all the more. And so it's, it's kind of a, that's the first section. The second section is verses 15 through 23. And basically he responds to the other response to his teaching in verse 20 of chapter 5 that says the law came in so that sin would increase. And at that point, you know, eyes are running back in their head and they're just going, what? We don't understand what you're saying. This is almost blasphemous. And so he explains that, and we'll get to that over the coming weeks. But I want you to understand today this. Our union with Christ, this is in your outline, in his death and resurrection is a foundation for the separation from sin and walking in the newness of life. You have to understand that we are brought one with Christ when we are saved. And so we want to look at basically four things as we kind of introduce this, this series today. First of all, there is a logical implication to reject. There's a logical implication to reject here. And we've touched on this already. Since God's response to increased sin is abundant grace, then we should sin more to get more grace. I mean, that seems kind of logical. Um, that's why he says in verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Well, he gives the answer, may it never be. Verse 1 really is a test of whether you have correctly understood Paul's message up to this point. That's really what he's doing. He's testing people. If you've been tracking with him, he knows what you're thinking. If God's response to increase sin is abundant grace then why not even sin more? Since God freely justifies not those who try hard, as we've seen. You don't get justified by just trying hard. But rather to those who do not work for their salvation. And since he justifies not those who are good people, but those who are sinners, then why work at being good? Or another way you could put it, if God is gracious towards sinners, then I'll just sin and ask him for his grace, <laughs> which is super abundant. One poet put it this way, I like committing crimes. God likes forgiving them. Really, the wor- world is admirably arranged. <laughs> See, the point is this, if salvation or justification is by faith plus our good works, the objection that Paul anticipates here never would have come up. It never would have come up. Or if you hedge in God's grace or somehow tone it down, no one would dare think what Paul knows we will think if if we heard him correctly. 
And sometimes people dumb down God's grace. They, they make it less than what it is. There's one very well-known um, seminar leader. He's, I don't know if he's still alive anymore or not, but his, uh, Bill Gothard, is he still around? I don't know if he passed on or not. But he defined grace this way. Listen to this definition in his basic youth conflict book. The desire and power to do God's will. That's how he defined grace. Because he had a problem saying, well, wait a minute, you know, isn't the grace of God giving us license to sin? So he had to redefine grace. And he said, no, grace is the desire and the power to do God's will. That's just plain wrong. That's not what grace means. That is not grace. God's grace is what? Undeserved, unmerited favor. And so if we understand and we teach grace correctly, that grace is God's undeserved favor, people will at least think what Paul anticipates here. So Paul doesn't modify his teaching that God justifies the ungodly apart from their works, or he doesn't modify the idea that increased sin leads to abounding grace. He teaches it as truth. And so we can't go down that logical road of saying, well, you know, if, if, if God's grace is there and God is glorified in, in giving us his grace, then why not make him give us more of it? Secondly, there's a spiritual fact here to know and believe. And this is simply this. If in Christ we died to sin, so we cannot still live in it. That's what he says in verse 2. After saying, by no means, he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? By the way, when he says, by no means there, or may it never be, or no, 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 however you want to say it, okay, that's a very, very strong no. He's asking that rhetorical question, and he's he's answering it very strongly, by no means, But the fact that we need to believe in Christ, we died to sin, so we cannot still live in it. There's no, the rhetorical question is, there is no way that those who died to sin can still live in it. That's the answer to the question that he just asked. I mean, it should be kind of logical. I mean, he's using a good illustration there. I've never seen a, a dead man sin. Dead men can't live in sin, obviously, because they're dead. But this also raises a lot of questions, and this is what I was telling you at the beginning. So are you saying if Christians are dead to sin, then why do they sin, right? That's one question. That's a good question. Or the other question is, can we attain sinless perfection in this life? Can we attain a certain level of, of sinlessness that just doesn't even affect us anymore? We're just perfect. And if so, doesn't this statement imply that we attain this state of being dead to sin at the moment of conversion? If not, well, do we need to work at being dead to sin? I told you there's going to be a lot of questions. So what Paul means here is the question what does he mean when he says that we died to sin and you can look in commentary after commentary and come up with a whole bunch of different views 
But for the sake of time, I'm kind of going to boil it down. Um, let me first of all tell you what it does not mean. When Paul says that we died to sin, he does not mean that believers cannot sin <laughs> or that they are immune to temptation. He does not mean that. He can't mean that. That's just not reality. Um, and I've heard people teach on this, and they say, well, you know, if you go into a morgue and you, you try to tempt a corpse to commit some sin, you won't succeed because he's dead. And they use that illustration. And they say, likewise, Christians are dead to sin, so you can't entice them. I've heard people on TV say, oh, you know, I, I don't deal with sin anymore. I'm above that. I'm a new creation in Christ. You know, I have victory over sin and death. Through the power of Christ. And they go on and on. It sounds real good, but you know it's not reality. So apart from the obvious fact that there is no such thing as Christians in this existence, and there never will be, and there never have been, that are not enticed by sin... And if that were the case, it would make all the moral commands in the Bible superfluous. It wouldn't matter. Why command me not to lust if I can't lust? (laughs) Because I'm dead to it. Why command me not to covet or not to steal if I'm dead to doing those things? So, I mean, that would make God out to be kind of ridiculous to give us commands that we don't have to deal with because we're above that. Plus, there's a lot of examples of godly men in the Bible who fell into serious sin. You think of Noah, he got drunk. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they all lied. David committed adultery, murdered after he wrote many of the Psalms. Peter denied the Lord and later acted in hypocrisy toward the Gentile believers in Antioch. And in Romans 7, we'll get to this, Paul shares his own struggle with sin. So, he does not mean that believers cannot sin or that somehow they are immune to temptation. That's what he does not mean. Well, what does he mean? Well, we just saw in chapter 5, verses 12 to 21, that all people are identified either with one of two people. Either you're identified with Adam under the reign of sin, or you are identified with with Christ under the reign of grace through righteousness. So you pick your team. Either you're with Adam under the reign of sin and death, or you're with Christ under the reign of grace through righteousness. Either you're in Adam or you're in Christ. We found out that by our physical birth, we all enter the world in Adam. We all enter the world sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it's because his sin was imputed to us. His sin was put on us. When Adam sinned, we sinned. But when we make that life-changing decision to trust Christ and his work on Calvary, we are transferred from Adam's headship into Christ's headship. And just as Adam's one sin condemned us all, so Christ's one act of obedience on the cross justified all who receive his gracious gift of eternal life. So Paul means here that if you are in Christ, 
When he died on the cross, you died in him. It's not something that you feel, but rather it's simply a fact. It's true because God declares it to be true. If Christ, our head, died, we who are his body died with him. That goes back to that mystical union with Christ. Substitutionally, he died for us. This is our new status. This is our new position before God. Since Christ died to sin, and we are now in him, we died to sin. We derive the benefits of his death because we are in him. That's important to understand. And remember, in the Bible, death is not primarily just cessation of life, but rather separation. At physical death, what happens? Your soul is separated from your body, is it not? When we died with Christ, we were separated from the reign of death and sin and put under Christ's reign of righteousness. As a result, sin's reign was broken over us. And here, Paul is implying simply that we cannot continue in sin or live in sin. Please understand, he's not, he's not talking about committing certain acts of sin. Okay, we, we all do that. But he has in mind here a lifestyle of sin. He's talking about living in sin as a way of life. If you look over at 1 John, 1 John chapter 3 speaks to this. In a little different way, but I think the same truth is, is implied here. First John chapter 3, look at verse 9. No one born of God, no one born of above, no one who's born again, no one who's trusted Christ for their, as their Savior and His work on the cross... No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. See, John is not saying that believers cannot sin at all because he'd be contradicting himself. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 8, he says, if we say we have no sin, (laughs) what? We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Therefore, we confess our sins because we have a gracious God who forgives us of our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And then in 2.1, he says, My little children, I'm writing to you these things that you, what? May not sin. But if anyone sins, or hey, I know you're going to sin, we have an advocate. With the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He's the only sacrifice that is available. And so he means that those born of God cannot continue in their old way of life, which is characterized by 
sin. The new birth removes them from it. So both Paul and John here are saying those who are in Christ cannot continue to live in sin as a way of life. When we are saved by God's grace, he places us in a whole new realm. It says he takes us from the kingdom of darkness, he puts us in the kingdom of light. And under the realm of grace, under the reign of grace, we now walk in the light as he is in the light, John says. We now obey God. We keep his commands as a pattern, as a habit, habitual way of living. We want to live in a way that honors Christ, not ourselves. So Paul says here that we need to know this fact and we need to believe it. In Christ, we died to sin, so we cannot still live in it. You know what? I'll just be real honest. If you're living the same way you lived before you came to Christ, we got problems. There's major problems. I mean, to the point where Paul says, you know what? You might want to make sure that you're in the faith. You might want to go back and examine your salvation. Because if you're living the same way, now that you're a, quote, Christian, as you lived before you were a Christian, you know, I used to tell young people, no change, no Jesus, no Jesus, no change. You know, it's easy for them to go to summer camp and run down to the fire and throw a little stick in and raise their hand. And, oh, yeah, I trusted Jesus. Well, you know what? Talk to me in two months. Talk to me in two months when you're back doing the same stuff you were doing before you went to camp. Then we can have an honest discussion about whether or not you're really a Christian. See, but we get into this idea that, well, now we're under the grace of God, so it doesn't matter. Yes, it does. It matters of utmost importance how you live your life each and every day. I mean, God expects us to live lives that are honoring to him. And just because he saved us by his grace and not by our good works, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be consumed with and have good works in our lives. He doesn't say that. The Bible says that God even prepared good works beforehand for us to do. So don't fall into that trap. So the logical implication to reject is that, you know what, since God's grace is so abundant, let's sin more to get more of the grace. Reject that. But the fact that you have to understand is that in Christ we died to sin. So we cannot still live in it. If you're living in sin as a way of life, very simply, you are not in Christ. You are not in Christ. You say, well, you're being judgmental. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm telling you what the Bible says. So take it up with God. Third thing, there's a spiritual analogy to help you understand this. And he says this in verses 3 and 4. And we're just going over these. We're going to cover these again next week. But the analogy is your baptism pictures your union with Christ in his death. Your baptism. He says, or do, not, do you not know that all of us have been baptized in Christ Jesus, um, have been baptized into his death, therefore we have been baptized with him through baptism uh, into death. And so it's important that you, you see here that, you know, verse 3, sometimes people use this out of context and they, they start saying, well, you need to be baptized in order to be saved. That's not what he's saying. This isn't a, a, a treatise on baptism. This is not what he's doing. He's simply pulling this in as an illustration because it was such a common thing in, in Paul's day and age that if you were a Christian, you were baptized. It was just common. 
When people in that day profess Christ in Jesus Christ, when they profess faith in Christ, they expressed it by being baptized in water. So he's assuming. Paul's just making the assumption. All the Christians in Rome, if they're Christian, they've been baptized. Because that's just what Christians do. Baptism usually followed faith in Christ rather quickly. All you have to do is look at the book of Acts. Chapter 2, verse 41. Chapter 8, verse 36. Chapter 9, verse 18. Somebody got saved, man, they got baptized. They dunked them in the water. It was a testimony of the, of the transformation that was happening in their life. The thought of distinguishing between spirit baptism, which happens at the moment of salvation, and water baptism would not have occurred here to Paul. It's true that we are baptized in Christ. That's how we become in Christ. We're baptized in him. We're we're in him. But after we're saved physically, after we're saved spiritually, we come to Christ. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward change in our life. It's a testimony of the grace of God in your life. That's why we don't believe in baptizing babies. Because babies don't have a testimony of belief in their life yet. That would be ridiculous. There's nowhere in the New Testament where they baptized infants. The only place that they go is to Colossians, and it makes kind of some aspects of circumcision similar to baptism. And so they say, well, since you know, the baptism's kind of replaced the circumcision thing, that's their argument, which is ridiculous. But the clear pattern in the New Testament is that a person, when they come to Christ, when they first believed in Christ, they expressed it in water baptism. Unfortunately, I think today we've somehow replaced baptism with walking an aisle or raising a hand or doing something like that to, to, to signify that we are now Christians. If you believed in Christ as your Lord and Savior, you should be baptized in water to confess your faith. That's what the Bible says. And we have a nice little tank up here we fill up a couple times a year, nice warm water. We'd be happy to make it very easy for you to follow the Lord's command of being baptized. But what does baptism picture? The main thought is that of identification. The word clearly means to immerse. You know, you don't sprinkle somebody when you baptize them. You immerse them. It was used of people drowning or ships being sunk in the ocean. To be baptized into Christ's death means to be totally identified with Christ in his death. When he paid the penalty of death, For sin, we paid the penalty in him. When he died to sin, conquering its its power, we who believe in him died to sin and its power. I mean, why does Paul emphasize not only Christ's death, but also the fact that we were buried with him through baptism? I mean, you don't bury a living person. To say that we were buried with Christ means that we really died with him. And baptism by immersion pictures that. Well, last thing, last point here. So we have the analogy of baptism there. But the last thing I want to leave you with is there's a spiritual fact to believe and act upon. 
And it's simply this, that since we are united with Christ, since we are one with Christ in his glorious resurrection, we should be walking in the newness of life. That's what he says in verse 4 there at the end. We should be walking in the newness of life. See, Christ was raised bodily from the grave, not just spiritually. But spiritually, we were in him. So that when he was raised in victory over sin and death, we also were raised too. Colossians 3.1. Now, we're not going to receive our new resurrection bodies until the time comes. Either we die and go to be with him or, or he, he comes in the, uh, the rapture of the church. We'll be glorified. We'll be completely free from sin. But the action on our part as a result of being spiritually resurrected with Christ is simply that we should walk in a new way. Paul says that Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father. It's kind of an unusual expression. You'd expect him to say by the power of God or something like that. Spurgeon says this, he says on this text, he points out that glory is a grander word because it includes the display of all the Father's attributes in raising Christ from the dead. The word Father rather than God implies great love for his Son and for us in giving up his Son to death. The wisdom of God which displayed was allowing Christ to suffer in our place before raising him from the dead. The Father's justice is displayed at the cross and resurrection. His faithfulness to the promise not to allow his Holy One to undergo decay was seen in the resurrection. And of course, his great power was displayed there too. So we are to walk in the newness of life. We're to live differently than we did before. Over time, we should make a progression of holiness in our lives. It's not a quick process. You know, the moment you get saved, you may think that you're holier than thou, but you're not. You'll sin. And when you sin, you go to the Father, and He forgives you, and you move on. But hopefully, those sinful behaviors and those things that were part of your old life are falling away. couple things to apply. I want to make sure that we don't presume on God's grace as a permission to sin. Never presume on God's grace as a permission to sin. Don't think that way. Um, God is committed to your holiness. And if you play loose with sin, he will discipline you, maybe even severely. Secondly, if you have trusted Christ... Make a distinct break with your past life and declare it publicly in baptism. That's a statement. That's, that's something believers should do. Becoming a Christian means burning all of your bridges to your past life of sin. If you're a drug addict, get rid of them. If you have alcohol problems, pour it down the drain. And then thirdly, Meditate often on your union with Christ and what it means. You're now in Christ. Think about it. Act upon it willingly. I think that the the Bible is very, very clear that that's what he calls us to do. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his one study, 
He talks about the example of slaves who were freed by President Lincoln during, after the uh, Civil War and his emancipation proclamation declared them to be free. Many of the older slaves had not known any other life. They were born slaves and had lived all their lives under a cruel master. But now they died to slavery. They were declared free. But they didn't feel free. When they saw their old master coming, they may have shook in fear and even obeyed him if he gave them a command. But they didn't have to obey him. His power over them was broken. They didn't have to live under his tyranny. They could walk in newness of life. And he concludes, he says, Even so, in Christ you died to sin. You no longer have to live under its power. You don't have to obey it. You have been raised up in Christ so that you can walk in the newness of life. Think often about your new position. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you that our union with Christ in his death and resurrection is really a foundation for us understanding our separation from sin and walking in the newness of life. And Lord, we pray this morning that you would uh, drive that truth home to us. And Father, we thank you for your grace that is extended to all who put their faith or trust in Christ. Lord, I pray for each soul that's represented here this morning. Lord, only you can see into their hearts. Only you know where they have put Christ. Father, I pray that if we have anyone here this morning who has yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, turn from their sin and turn to the Savior. I pray that you would draw them through your power of your spirit, through the power of your word, that you would convict them of their sin to the point that they could just cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. And for us as believers, I pray that we would take this message of the glorious grace of Christ and live in the newness of life and then share this message of grace with those who've yet to hear at our schools, at our workplaces, in our families, our neighbors. Lord, that many would come to understand and to know you as their Lord and Savior. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.